you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating on iTunes, Stitcher, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. On today's podcast, I'm joined once again by Dr. Carly Kehoe. She is a history professor and the Canada Research Chair in Atlantic Canada Communities at St. Mary's University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We spoke to Dr. Kehoe a few episodes back. I'm sure you remember we uh, talked a little bit about the many former slaves who left the American colonies after the American Revolution and then ended up settling in Nova Scotia. Today, we're going to talk about another area, another one of her areas of expertise and another group of folks who really do pertain to Nova Scotia, but also to Oak Island and the theories around the origin of the money pit. That's the Scottish. In 1621, King James I of England granted the first royal charter to settle the lands now known as Nova Scotia to a man named William Alexander, the first Earl of Stirling. He was a uh, poet and a politician of sorts from central Scotland. In that charter, The land he was going to settle was to be called Nova Scotia, which is Latin for New Scotland. So it goes without saying that the Scots have cast a large and very influential shadow over Nova Scotia since the very beginning of European settlement in the New World. The settlement ended up costing Sterling his fortune, and land actually ended up changing hands quite a bit between the French and English, you know, on more than one occasion during the uh, first few centuries after Sterling's arrival. Uh, But nonetheless, the Scots would always play a part in Nova Scotia's development as a colony and eventually as a Canadian province. Of course, many in Oak Island theory also has a little Scottish flavor baked into the sauce a bit. Captain Kidd was himself a Scotsman, so were the Knights Baronet. And of course, most theories involving the Knights Templar takes them from the mainland of Europe to Nova Scotia via Scotland. If someone was doing something secret way back when in Nova Scotia, it seems they were probably from Scotland. So with that in mind, I felt it a good idea for all of us, really, who uh, w- w- to get some real background about the Scottish of Nova Scotia. And thankfully, Dr. Kehoe has spent years and years researching just this subject. Now, just please keep in mind, the conversation you're about to hear is not really about Oak Island all that much, although I sneak in a uh, theory question or two later on in the uh, conversation. So if you're looking for a talk about the money pit or the Knights Templar or... Digging by Rick Lagina, this is not the episode for you. Um, One of the things I'm doing, really, as part of this podcast, in order to try and come up with my own theory of the case here, so to speak, and sort of, or maybe even come up with uh, which theory I back of the existing ones, one of the things I'm trying to do is to get a much better understanding of the history of the people and the cultures of Nova Scotia, the entire story, not just the story of Oak Island since the Money Pit's discovery. And like I already said there, it's hard not to turn towards Scotland for some answers in a quest such as this. So stay tuned, folks. And after the break, I'll be joined by Carly Kehoe of St. Mary's University. Another incredibly popular theory right now revolves around the Scottish influence in Nova Scotia. Now, 
Here's my sum total of knowledge of the Scottish influence in Nova Scotia. Again, as I said in the last time, I apologize for being American. I know that um, Nova Scotia is means New Scotland. So there's that. There's uh, that, yeah. <laughs> I've seen the flag. There's uh, that as well. <laughs> it does look very similar to the yeah. Scottish flag. Uh, so... Uh, I mean, from first blush, it looks like a, a bunch of Scots got on a boat and landed in Halifax. Um, I would assume this is telling us a story that Scotland and the Scottish played a major role in the founding of Nova Scotia. So, yes, uh, the, the, the English did initially because... Um, uh, well, actually, I think it was, no, it was at, so after the Union of the Crowns, but before the, the Union of the Parliaments, um, the Scots did play a major role in... Okay, for, um, for, first of all, you, of, just, you just throw around these things that Americans don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> the Union well, of the Who is, and the What? <laughs> so this is, this is really interesting. Um, in 1603, this, this gets to also questions about the heart of, of the British Union that, that is now at risk today. Um, right. But... The Union of the Crowns happened in 1603, and that was when the crowns of England and Wales, Scotland and Ireland were united under James VI of Scotland and I of England. And he was Mary, Queen of Scots' son. Uh, that was 1603. That's the beginning um, of this union of these nations coming together. And, and the, the, using the term nation at this time is a little bit tricky. Then in 1707, what happens is... Um, the parliaments of Scotland and England and Wales come together to form um, one parliament, which is centred in London, removed from Edinburgh. Um, and so that's important when you think about empire and you think about the extent to which the Scots were involved in this place or that place. Because before 1707, the Scots did not have, even though they were moving within the English Empire, and it was the English Empire. It was after 1707 when it became the British Empire and the Scots had open access to everything. Now, you have, um, in 1625, I believe, uh, King James gave a grant of land in Cape Breton or, or Cape Breton um, to this guy, William Alexander, Sir William Alexander. And the intention was to have a settlement here, um, but it just never really came to anything. And so there was that influence. Um, but then when you really start to get the Scots coming in, um, it's in the 18th century and um, huge settlement really towards the end of, or the last quarter of the 18th century. Um, but the majority come in the 19th century. So the first settlement is in 1625? So the the, oh. le, the grant of Cape Breton to Sir William Alexander, a Scot, was in 1625. And the intention was for there to be a, a colony um, established with settlers and all of this. But it just didn't really turn into anything. Okay, that's, there Cape, were a lot that's of, Cape Breton. Cape Breton, Not yeah, all which, of Nova Scotia. Not all of Nova Scotia, no. So in 1625, no. who has the rest of Nova Scotia? Is it claimed by the French? or where? What, what does it look like at this point, this whole area? Um. <laughs> it's a mess. <laughs> I know. Well, that's what we're trying to fight my way yeah. through all this. Yeah. So in the 17th century, it was France. Yeah. And so you have a lot of tension between um, France and England in the 17th century, which accelerates 
um, in the 18th century. Um, and you have uh, the French establish uh, a big, a, a major fort at Louisbourg, right. um, which is on Cape Breton Island. And then you have um, the British, really from the middle of the of the 18th century. They're 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 definitely here earlier, but they they kind of take over everything um, by the middle of the 18th century uh, af after Britain wins the Seven Years' War, and Cape Breton, Prince Edward Island, all these places get turned over. To Britain, France loses them all. Okay, so the French influence is there, but they're at this very point... strong. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about the Scottish influence in Nova Scotia at this point. Um, I mean, I, I'm a musician, so I, I know I know uh, maritime Canadian music, and it sounds very Irish, very Scottish to me. Yeah. Um, we talk about how we, we we mentioned about how the French had a big. Um, influence in the area at the time, but it certainly does seem as though the Scots uh, must have had an even larger influence at some point here. Yeah, so I think in terms of, of sort of the cultural influences, it was definitely something that was commodified in the 20th century. Um, and so you get a real focus, and the Scots in the 19th century also were an enormous ethnic group. So they, they outnumbered a lot of other groups. So, so numerically, they were very, very strong. In Nova Scotia. Um, in Nova Scotia, right. yeah. Yeah, because also Cape Breton and Nova Scotia came back together in 1820. They, Cape Breton had been annexed, and it was its own colony um, from, I think, 1783 to 1820. And after 1820, it joins Nova Scotia, so you have one large province. And in the 20th century... Um, it was, you know, the, the Scottish element uh, was commodified. It was something that people um, thought could be sold and repackaged and celebrated. And it was, it was also part of this need to celebrate a past that had not really been um, prioritized or permitted. And there had been also discrimination against particularly the Highland Scots. But I don't want anybody to be under the false impression um, that they did not take advantage of the land here and that they did not take advantage of the fact that they were British subjects and Britons. So, okay. All right. I think, I think I'm following what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, a silly question. Why new Scotland? Why do we call it's it Nova name. Scotia? It's just a name. I mean, it's we just, just a name. is it really? <laughs> No, it's not just a name, but it's really, really complicated. That's another episode. Um, it's it's complicated. Um, it, it took that name in the 17th century and it just stuck, right? And when you name something, you're assigning ownership to it or you're, you're connecting it with yourself. So when you name New Scotland somewhere that's held by France, what are you suggesting? That's where I was going with that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that the thing that we need to keep in mind uh, when we look at this period is uh, things were determined by the tensions that existed between France and England and other political dynamics happening on the European continent and, and, and empire building and expansion. Um, and so um, England certainly had ambitions. And then when it had that union of the parliaments in 1707 and it becomes the British Empire, it has a lot more people um, to involve in the process of, of empire building. And so you have significant um, big major wars that happen um, in the early 18th century, middle and late 18th century um, between Britain and France. 
Tell tell us a little bit about those. I'm I'm, I'm fascinated <laughs> by the by the war. People love war. People love talking about wars. What, 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 tell us just a little bit about that. And also, after the the union of the parliament, where do the Scots fit in all this? Like, are they they're British? Are they just make themselves part of the English cause here, so to speak? Because so, the England France thing goes be- certainly long yeah. before the union of the parliaments. Yeah, and I mean, there were relationships, like Scot- Scotland and France, there's this old alliance that people flag. Um, Mary, Queen of Scots, of course, um, spent a lot of her early years in France. Um, the, the connections between the Scottish and the French crowns, and this is where you need to speak to an early modernist, but those go back a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, but after 1707, and this is something people really need to get their heads around, and I'm a Four Nations historian, which means I am very... Like I, I believe in the the identity of each nation that creates a constituent part that becomes Britain. So I'm not um, like an amalgamist. I okay. am very much each nation contributes to the whole. Um, but after 1707, the Scots are British, and they absolutely use that to their advantage, and they explode throughout the empire, and they develop major business interests, major colonial interests, settlements. Like they're they're taking every opportunity they possibly can um, as Britons. And that's really important because one of the things I always try to correct people um, on is you have to stop just assuming England and France in the 18th century. And you have to start thinking about Britain and Britain France, and France because it makes more room for the people that were involved. And if you continue to just talk about England, you're, you're actually exonerating the Scots from any kind of colonization. And we cannot do that, particularly in Nova Scotia, where they were extremely aggressive and active colonizers. Go, tell us about it. Yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's a symptom of empire building. And it was people um, who had ambitions and they wanted to develop wealth and they wanted to improve their lot. And they felt they were entitled to territories um, and um, they moved out into any area that they could and they established networks and they built, they, they built um, uh, businesses, settlements, homes, families, lives. Um, and they connected back with Scotland, back with London, back with Bristol. Um, and it was just this huge network of imperialists. And the Scots um, were really, really good at it. And there's actually a lot of refreshing work happening in Scotland at the moment. I would argue um, much more critical work happening in Scotland at the moment from the researcher's perspective on this past um, than in other places. And so, for example, when uh, it comes to British involvement with with slavery um, and the enslavement of, of Africans, the Scots are facing this past um, much more, uh, I think, uh, uh, um, honestly, than say the Irish are coming along. They they are starting to look at this, um, and and the English are are making important moves. But the Scots have really kind of grabbed onto this and thought, okay, we need to understand more. Why do you think it's been not understood up till now? Uh, oh, so. I think there's a culture of celebra- uh, celebration when it comes to the empire. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's not something that people like to do to look at difficult pasts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much easier to talk, like you said, people like war. Why do they like war? Often because they win. 
Right. Yeah. Um, so they don't stop to think about, well, what were the implications in the 18th century, for example, of those wars that happened? And it was the acquisition of territory. It was much more money, uh, merchant networks, products. Um, but it was also the theft of land. And, you know, these treaties um, were were set up between Indigenous groups and the British Crown, but they were understood very, very differently. So in Nova Scotia, where you have a treaty of peace and friendship, it's understood by Lingma as peace and friendship. It's right. not understood as giving over land, whereas the British see it and design it as we're, we're taking land. Well, that's something very so, familiar to American historians, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And so the Scots were, were at the center of it all. And just like the Irish, right? Like that's going to come as well, um, where you start to connect. And there's there's work, um, one of my colleagues and I, we have a project where we're looking at um, Catholic involvement in the British Atlantic. And one of the big streams of that work is Catholics as um, uh, slave owners and, and imperial partners. And that's not something a lot of people naturally think about because, again, this isn't what people have been taught right? Britain is a Protestant state. It's like, yeah, it's a Protestant state, but what about all the Catholics that were working behind the scenes as part of that state? <laughs> so, um, I guess the, I guess the, the, the thing that kind of comes to my mind in all this is, is I'm, I'm stunned by the, I mean, I, you know, how, how do I put it without putting out, you know, bringing up Mel Gibson here? Um, I guess some of the some of the feeling is I, I don't know that we think of the Scottish as um, pushing themselves upon the American continent. You, you know, I, I mean, yeah. we, we, we think of maybe because of, again, being an American, we think of, um, you know, people coming here uh, to work on the railroads and things like that. And there, of course, there was a very big Scottish influence in Carnegie's and things like that as well. But um, this is fascinating to me because it is a, a part of history that's I think is absolutely lost to us as this, you know, as this feel like you're saying, as this feeling of the Scots being sort of this friendly, bearded, kilted, <laughs> you know, group of yeah. people who didn't do these things that we ascribe to the English. Yeah, and I, so that's a really interesting, and it's an important discussion that, that we all need to have. Um, now, there, it, the, the kind of Scots that you're describing are Highland Scots. Right. And so the Highlands um, in the sort of, really after the Jacobite Rebellion, 1746, the, the last one ends, mm -hmm. um, the Highlands are attacked and they are, are really forced through a process of pacification and um, things are outlawed and people are pushed out and you get the beginning of what was going to become the Highland clearances. Um, and so you, in, especially in the, in the late 19th century, you have a lot of Highland Scots who are leaving because they can. They're making the choice to leave because they really don't see a future for themselves in Scotland. And it's very, very difficult. In the, eight, in the 19th century, particularly after the 1820s, um, you have a lot of people being forced out of their you know, traditional homelands. And so they're, they're being cleared. They're being kicked off. And they're being replaced by sheep, cattle, and deer forests. And... The landowners who used to be 
um, some of them used to be Highland chiefs, but a lot of the, the new landowners in the Highlands were actually people that made their money in empire and could come back and buy huge tracts of land. Right. Um, they did not value those sort of subsistence lifestyles. So you get people being forcibly removed. They end up in places like Nova Scotia, Cape Breton in particular. And so they have this trauma. And that's a really complicated part of the story that you then have to put alongside the fact that when they got here, where did they live? They lived on land that used to be used and 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 support the Mi'kmaq. Do you think they had much sympathy for the indigenous people? No. And they actively went for their land and they actively petitioned for their land. The Nova Scotia Archives has amazing an amazing collection of land petitions and on a number of those land petitions you have um, Highland Scots acknowledging that the land is near or used by the Mi'kmaq but they don't care they want it anyway so we have this really um, fraught relationship where yes there was um, trauma that Highland Scots experienced when they were forced off their land and and they migrated across the Atlantic but then what did they do when they got here they became colonizers. Right. And so it's a hard thing to talk about when you have to deal with trauma on one side and aggression on the other. Like I've written um, that these are two Highland pasts that can't be reconciled, certainly not in my opinion, um, and, and they exist. And so now what do we do with it? Well, right. we talk about it and we acknowledge it. I and mean, then we try to figure out a path. It, it certainly see my, my the, one of the questions I was going to ask you the, from from what you're saying here. It certainly seems like the Scottish influence continued beyond the colonial period, oh, um, yes. you know, uh, or migration continued through to this area. Really, you know, probably up until modern times, I would imagine. I mean, yeah, the the majority of it kind of was was over by the 1850s. That was okay. when people started redirecting their attention to other parts um, of the empire. But in fact, I, th I think I'm right in saying that the, the majority of Scottish emigration actually happened between the First and Second World Wars, not to this part um, of the world, but certainly to, you know, Ontario, uh, other parts of the, um, uh, the empire, oh my God, um, other parts of the world where people are, are just trying to form a new life. A lot went to Australia, to New Zealand, because um, they just, they wanted out. And, and post-World War One, Scotland was a tough place to be right. right so i mean it's i mean if I, I i lived in scotland for 16 years and i lived in glasgow and glasgow was one of the it was really the industrial heart of of scotland after world war one I, I mean i probably would have left if i could have right to try to make a new life somewhere else where it was just going to be easier or where i thought it was going to be easier a very familiar story for a lot yeah. of countries yeah, you know, loads coming to North to America. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, you have time for a couple of uh, crazy Oak Island questions? Okay. I don't know if I'll be able to answer them. Very you don't well. have to. You don't have to. <laughs> okay. uh, but I, I want to ask you anyway. Because, y you know, I mean, there's a Scot by the name of Henry Sinclair that uh, <laughs> features very. You have a monument for him somewhere in Nova Scotia, I believe. Oh, we've got loads of monuments. And some <laughs> of them are coming down. <laughs> oh, you're doing that too. Well, um, Glad to. Yeah, they one of them predated the the movement now, but um, yeah, no, they need to be looked at and considered. So, so Henry Sinclair definitely became more popular after he left this mortal coil. I I, I assume that. <laughs> Suspect, yeah. Um, 
this is a strange question, a little bit off topic. As a historian, can you describe to me what Nova Scotia was like kind of between the years of like the revolution and maybe like the 1850s? Like, is this a barren? Is this a, there not a lot of people here? Um, is it mostly still a fishing community? Like, um, is there are, are there conflicts between native populations and settlers or colonists or whatever you called them at the time? Can you just kind of give me a, a a feel? I've always wanted to ask a historian what Nova Scotia was like during this time that we focus on in the Oak Island um, timeline. Yeah, so um, the term I would use to describe the Europeans who settled here are settler colonialists. That's that's how I would describe them. Okay. Um, and from you know the the late 18th century, the period of of the American Revolution to about 1850, um, Nova Scotia <clears throat> itself is a really important port uh, or a really important colony for the British Empire because one of the things you need to remember after the American Revolution. Um, Nova Scotia was a place that Britain still held, and therefore it was a place that Britain could use to its advantage on the North American continent when it, it no longer had um, the lands to the south. And so that, that is really important. Halifax was a major port, um, and it was, it was absolutely essential to trade with the Caribbean and with Europe. Um, also, Arishat, which um, after 1820, again, when Cape Breton rejoins Nova Scotia, Arishat was a major center of, of um, merchants and shipping and connections back with, with the UK, with uh, mainland Europe and also with the Caribbean. So there's a lot um, of movement around and there's migration, um, but there's trade and the, the number of settlers are creeping up. Um, as more and more people are starting to leave um, Scotland, Ireland, and and England, uh, and they're they're coming over here, so it's it's uh, it's an evolving society. There's still significant forests, and you know, um, like I mentioned uh, earlier, um, there's not a lot of infrastructure inland, but along the coasts, they're very much connected. So it was really busy. It was it was busy. It was. I I wouldn't want to call it barren or empty, right? Because um, people people were here, and even before the Europeans came, the Mi'kmaq were here, and then the the Acadians were here. When you say major, I mean, in, in, in as far as these ports go, I mean, I'm comparing them to New York, Boston at the time. I mean, it was Halifax was as big, if not bigger than that. So I'm not familiar with how big Boston or New York were at okay. this time, but Halifax was a major British port and in the seemed, Atlantic. I mean, just looking at a map, you would see that uh, Nova Scotia yeah. must have been part of the European plan for even Absolute. centuries before that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you had a lot of fish that were... It, it was really yeah. important to the European diet. Um, you get it off, well, the Grand Banks of Newfoundland um, and, and Nova Scotia. Um, there were major shipping um, back and forth across the Atlantic, fish going over um, and goods coming back. So that's going to do it for this episode of Digging Oak Island. I hope you enjoyed that conversation about the Scottish influence in Nova Scotia. Um, like I said, it might not be the most um, uh, Oak Island centered, certainly not a television show kind of episode. Um, but again, we're on a journey here to sort of discover what could have happened. And I don't think you can really know that without getting a good working background of your subject, of your area that you're looking at here. 
So with that, my sincere thanks again to Dr. Carly Kehoe of St. Mary's University uh, in Nova Scotia for taking the time out of her day, really, and talking to me and answering our questions. Uh, it was great talking to her. She's a terrific person and uh, had such a <laughs> such a great time chatting with her, even off podcast here. Uh, I seriously can't thank her enough for coming on the show. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do enjoy the show, it helps us to get more listeners to the program if you rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you can rate and review. If you listen somewhere else that has a rating and reviewing uh, possibility, please do so there. Uh, somehow that does seem to help get the word out on us and uh, drive more listeners to the podcast. Uh, I promise you we will have part two of the story of the life and times of Captain Kidd coming in the future. If anyone out there has read anything about Captain Kidd's voyage, you realize how incredibly dense a subject it is. So I'm really trying to get it all right and seeing if I can abridge it a little bit for you so we're not getting into the minutiae here. Um, but we will uh, return to that soon. And I also have a geologist coming on soon who we mentioned in a previous show from... Um, through one of our listener questions, uh, I have a geologist, Dr. Stephen Aiken, coming on who's going to tell us uh, some things that might sound a bit skeptical in the way of uh, Oak Island theorists. Don't forget you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Diggin' Oak Island. Give us a like there. That'd be much appreciated. I post all of my photos and things like that, all the stuff that I reference, all the little links that I reference and those kind of things. Um, for the show on there rather than in the show notes uh it's easier to do it via facebook for sure and if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me you can do so at digginoakisland at gmail.com and as i like to say remember if you do send me an email uh unless you tell me you do not want it read on the air it is fair game to be read on the air here on a future digging oak island podcast so until we speak again i'm dave mcbride thank you for listening to digging oak island <laughs>